Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and I am pinching myself today because I am at work and I get to talk about baseball cards. So I'm here with I'm here with Brad Johnson today. We are going to talk about collectibles. We're going to talk about trading cards and what I have tried to position to my wife as a sound investment and an alternative asset class. Welcome to the show, sir. Glad to be here. This is fun. Yes. So I have had the privilege of being on your podcast a few times. Fantastic podcast, but um, it's great to to have you on my show. I want to talk a little bit uh, just as sort of an intro to how I got re-emerged into this world. Like every kid our age, right? I collected baseball cards in the junk wax era. And I had this box of cards that I thought was going to make me rich, that was going to send me to college and of course, as we'll discuss later today, this was like the absolute worst time to be collecting and uh, it did not make me rich. So during the pandemic, though, sort of in the in the deepest, darkest part of the pandemic, I got out my baseball cards and started looking through them and started looking at them with my seven-year-old son, who's a big, uh, big sports nut. And what I would do is we would play Madden or we would play PlayStation or something. And I would say, well, hey, if you win, um, you know, if you beat me, I'm going to let you pick one of my baseball cards from my stash here. Well, he he beats me five or six times. He picks some cards. And for Christmas, I get him a Beckett price guide. And we start looking at some of these cards that he's taken from me. And some of them are worth four figures, right? Like some of them, <laughs> he's... He's, oh, I haven't heard. I haven't heard this part of the story. This yeah, yeah. He's 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 taken some pretty good stuff for me at this point, right? Um, he's taken you know a couple of Ken Griffey Jr. rookies and a couple other things, and I'm like, oh, you know, these are these are worth something. So you know, it didn't didn't pay for my college, but perhaps not as worthless as I thought. And that was the catalyst for me to kind of get back into it. So tell us a little bit about your professional pedigree, sort of how how you've come to work in finance and with advisors, and then how you found yourself as as a very serious sort of trading card enthusiast. Yeah, I'll I'll try to make it short and sweet. So it was it was really cool. I think, um, gosh, Aaron Klein, if I go back originally, introduced us, Daniel, and it was uh, Aaron Klein, the the CEO at, at Riskalyze, mm. and you had come out and spoke at one of their events, and he came on my podcast, the Elite Advisor Blueprint. And then I, we were pinging each other about, hey, who should I have on? He's like, oh, you got to have Dr. Daniel Crosby on. So that was where our paths uh, crossed. But to rewind a little bit, I got into finance. I was actually an IT major out of college. Um, worked at uh, now the defunct Payless Shoe Source uh, in IT for three years before I made the jump into finance. I was really, really fortunate. Started with a little startup at the time, a company called Advisors Excel based out of Topeka, Kansas. I was the 12th guy, I believe, on the team and was there for an incredible run. I think it was just right around 14 years. Uh, The company grew from basically a company nobody had ever heard of in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, to um, 
the largest broker of fixed and indexed annuities in the United States, about $7 billion-ish a year, built a, a $14, $15 billion RIA by the time I left, and uh, top five life insurance brokerage as well. So really, our clientele were independent financial advisors all across the country. And my role was really started as what I would call a wholesaler role and evolved into more of an entrepreneurial coach, which is where the podcast kind of came in. And I was trying to serve my clients, had a super eclectic guest list, and just really enjoyed geeking out on things that, you know, different conversations that could serve financial advisors. And yeah, that was my journey into the podcasting world. I've since left that company, started my own company right about a year ago, uh, the Digital Financial Advisor. And we're, you know, I like to say we're where, where finance meets the future with helping a very brick and mortar kind of blockbuster-esque business model and finance evolve into a Netflix type of digital version where we're running Facebook traffic uh, and building some really cool stuff for financial advisors across the country. So that's the short version. Do you want the how I got into cards version now? Yeah, I, I do because people are sitting here rolling their eyes going, this is two grown men with you know, this is this is two grown men with some professional uh, you know who've had some professional success geeking out about trading cards. So explain to us how you got into it, and if you can put into words, explain the compulsion or the draw to collect cards for people who are otherwise sane. I was thinking about this this morning. I'm like, if there was a thesis, like how could I de- deconstruct it? And I think it all starts with nostalgia. Like you said, when you were a kid, you collected cards. When I was a kid, I collected cards. Uh, 1987 tops, the wooden border. Oh, yeah. I remember that, like the Bo Jackson, the Barry Bonds. It wasn't their their ex rookie, but it was their first, you know, legit rookie. And those card lovers out there will know what that means. But um, so that was my first card. And and you've mentioned the junk wax era. People will say that's you know like the 80s era to the early 90s era. And what that means is they just printed millions and millions of cards, uh, which means we all thought we were getting like the Mickey Mantles from the 50s when we were kids. In reality, you know, the Bo Jackson rookie, there was like 3 million of them printed or whatever at the time. So like, if you go back, like I was thinking like, what's the thesis here? Number one, it's in the early days, like I would venture to say there was actually, humans have always collected scarce things, right? And if you go back and deconstruct, I think there was actually a quote unquote sports card collector or a market before sports cards, because you think before the camera, there was actually painters and they captured moments. And those moments were typically of famous people. And so you think you look at the predecessor to card collecting, it's like people, there's still a lot of people that collect art, um, you know, the Monet's, the Picasso's, all of that. But there was a lot of art you go to a museum that was simply a painting of a famous person and it was scarce because there was one or very few of them. Mm-hmm. Well, now fast forward and I know you gave me like a deconstruction of the history of the card. So I don't know if you want to go into that. I don't want to steal yeah. your thunder. Yeah, yeah. I'll go into it in a minute. So you 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 fast forward and originally it was like famous sports guys to market different products. But then it became this collection. So you've got collecting scarce things, which is a human thing. You've got the fascination with sports, which is very much an alive thing, which it's funny that when COVID shut all that down, where did people go? Where was their sports? Oh, I guess I'll go dig out the sports cards in my basement that I haven't looked at for a few decades. And then you've got the investment. Now, the investment piece of it, I think what happened back when we were kids, 
it was a very opaque market Mm -hmm. and it was a very illiquid market because the only way for us to figure out what these things were worth was to get our Beckett price guide, which by the way, was just like them trying to piece together like different card shows and what are people actually selling things for. So even their data wasn't very good. Yeah. And then the liquidity, the Mm -hmm. only way you had liquidity in that market was to go to a local card show or card shop. So it was very regionalized. It wasn't, it wasn't globalized as it is today because there was no internet. And so now, like I look at the New York Stock Exchange back in the day, it was people standing around in a room trading pieces of paper, which were, you know, stocks, pieces of a company. Now it's like the closest thing. If you follow sports, there's a lot of people that gamble on sports. There's a lot of people that are interested in investments. It's kind of brought all of those worlds together to where now the internet has created liquidity. Um, There's more information available and accessible. And it's really like if I'm, I know you're a Cardinals fan. I'm a Chiefs fan. But if if Mahomes is my guy and I think he's the next Tom Brady, which looked a lot better before this season started. The same. But uh, <laughs> but but anyway, let's let's say that's let's say that's my thesis. I would argue that if I'm if I love sports, I love investing, and maybe I love a little bit of a gamble, then now I can buy a piece of paper with his picture on it. And depending on the card, I know the scarcity. Because mm-hmm. now there's grading companies like PSA, SGC, Beckett that will actually say, here's the population of this card in existence in this grade, like how well, how good of condition has it been. And now I can invest in a player. Um, if they're still playing, that to me is like a small cap, kind of a volatile type investment because, you know, it's really sad. The Henry Ruggs news that just came out. Well, guess what? All of his cards are in the trash now because I mean, he's not on a professional football team. So there's a lot of volatility in current players, injuries, Bo Jackson, when I was growing up, you know, that, that type of thing where you go more blue chip, you go more established. That would be like, go buy a mantle, go buy a Jordan, go buy Kobe. You know, his career was over and his legacy is already established. So that's going to be more of a slow growth type of investment over time. So, sorry, I'm getting a little geeky here, but I get excited about this stuff. So that's kind of like the way I view it. And I also think the nostalgia lens. Gary Vaynerchuk talks about it a lot. He's gotten back into cards quite a bit. I collected cards when I was a kid. Now I have three kids, 11, 10, and five. Guess what? We're looking for stuff to do on the weekends that we both enjoy where we can bond. So now they're getting into NFL cards because like I played football. So they're like Braun plays football and they want to like get into that. That's our time together. I would argue there's another cycle coming, which is when I'm a grandparent with my grandkids. Mm-hmm. So you know, I just think, I think all of these markets go through cycles. I would argue even our parents, you know, I, I think everybody, our parents age, like I had that Mickey Mantle card that's worth like 200 K and my parents threw all of them away. And yeah. so even I think that collecting cycle started before us and that was what led us into it. And then it's kind of continued to go in those generational cycles. Well, you're right. We really are sort of seeding the next generation of investors with, with that same nostalgia that I think is, is right on. You know, my son and I, we have a we have an elaborate point system for his baseball games. And, you know, the more defensive putouts he gets and the more hits he gets, the more uh, cards he gets to open. And it's, you know, it's become this whole ritual, but it's a way that we connect. It's it's a way that we bond. So you've you've started to analogize the, the card thing into investing. And I think that's powerful. And we're going to get into more of that. For me, one of the things about being a good investor is is understanding market history. 
And so you're right. You know, I shared with you sort of a, a history of cards. This is baseball cards. Baseball is my sport. You know, during the pandemic, I was waking up at four o'clock in the morning to watch Korean baseball because I missed it so much until it, you know, until it came back. And so I think you're right on there. So I I just want to break it down a little bit. When I looked at the history of cards, I was fascinated to learn the first cards were called cabinet cards. Now, this is like Civil War era. And there's some debate about whether or not these are even cards because it's really just pictures of sort of pickup teams that were as big as a cabinet, right? So they were called cabinet cards because they were super expensive, they were rare. And if you were lucky enough to get a picture of your sort of pickup baseball team, you would, you know, uh, display it there in your cabinet. Then we get to the the tobacco cards, which I think is where you get the Hannes Wagner card and some of the ones that people are, are more familiar with. These were actually had served a very practical end, right? These are uh, used as a stiffener for, for cigarette packs and then sort of became collectibles as well. We've got the golden era from 1909 to, to 1915, the T206 cards. Uh, some of these have sold for as much as $6 million. Uh, in 1951, we start the Tops Monopoly that will has, has recently come to an end and we'll talk about the implications of that. And then of course we have the junk wax era, which I think you can sort of analogize to different booms in the market. I mean, the junk wax era of the 80s and 90s is, is maybe in, in many respects like the dot-com era uh, in the market. So yep. when you when you think about these different uh, ebbs and flows and these different periods of, of trading card history, is there anything we can learn of, about markets broadly from observing what's happened in, in the world of card collecting? I, I mean, it's greed and fear cycles. I mm. think like if you really zoom way out, um, like most market cycles, I mean, when we were kids, there was card shows like every weekend. I think every small town had a card shop mm-hmm. and you see, you start you're starting to see this pop up. Uh, it's, it's interesting. So, so I think there's, there's some inflection points going on right now. COVID shut sports down. People were confined to their homes for a year. They got bored. They went down in the basement. They got their cards. They had the internet. So now they're on eBay. Okay, well, I can maybe swap some cards. I can do this. And then the the big inflection point I saw was The Last Dance, Mm. uh, the Jordan documentary, the Bulls documentary, where everybody's watching it because everybody's at home. And then boom, right after that hits, the Jordan cards all spike. Mm. Like his rookie um, in a PSA 10, we should probably deconstruct what that means probably the most well-known card grade. So this is the other thing that's really big is card grading has become a thing. So when we were kids, Daniel, like you just went and you bought a card in a hard case and you looked at it like, Oh, it looks pretty good. Good yeah. centering, which means, you know, left good. to right. Yeah. yeah it's, it's got a frame around it. That's centered. The corners are not rounded. There's no bending or, or creases. And you're like, okay, looks like a good card. Well, now, there's companies that professionally grade these cards. PSA is the most, I'd say, I'd say it's the biggest. It's most people yeah, would say it's the best. People. They just, yeah, it's, it's, it's just got some private equity bank uh, backing. So it's, but anyway, long story short, now they will grade a card in on the PSA scale of grading a 10 is a perfect card. Jim meant a one is, you know, like really bent up and rough. And then it's scales of two, three, four, five, and they've got some half scales. But the the difference now, is now you know the population count 
of that card in your hand. Where when we were kids, basically what happened is you had the Ken, I remember the 89 Ken Griffey Jr. rookie upper deck, everybody yeah, does that was a kid and into cards. And that was the hundred dollar card in 1989 that, you know, all of us like drooled over in the case. Well, what we didn't know at the time, it, it would be like investing in a stock and not knowing the market cap of that stock. Right. Right. You just know the price, but you don't know the market cap and mm-hmm. or, or the, the outstanding shares. And we were all buying this or drooling over this $9,900 card when we were kids, not knowing that Upper Deck has printed millions of them because they keep selling. So they're a company for profit. So they're just going to keep flooding the market with supply. What's changed today back to, and I'm probably getting a little off track on your question here, but what's changed today is now you can very clearly know here is how many of this card is in existence. And therefore you can start to know what's the valuation. And then you have a total, you have different, and I can share some tools if that's of interest, but you have, you know, eBay auctions that are going off every minute. And now you have tools like card ladder that's aggregating these auctions. And so now I can wake up and if you've got a Michael Jordan rookie, you can say, Oh, over the last day, it's actually increased $207 in value at that grade at that population count based on it being in this PSA slab. And so I think that's the big thing is when there's massive demand, these are for-profit companies that are going to print, 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 print. That's happening today. Like some people, you know, I think you referenced maybe Junk Wax Era 2.0. The difference being is rather than me going out and getting a base card. So if we think those of us that got cards when we grew up, a base card, which there was only base cards other mm-hmm. than maybe some insert cards that came later that were, were a little more scarce. Maybe there's one every 10 packs or 20 packs of cards. Well, now they're manufacturing cards. They're called parallels. And so here's the base card. They might print hundreds of thousands of that one. But now here's this one with a beautiful red border. And that's a one of 10. Mm-hmm. And now it's ser- it's serial numbered, right? So it's there's only 10 of this one made and there might only be one in a PSA 10. So now there's scarcity and you can you can actually uh, know there's scarcity because you just go to a website and you look that card up. So I think that's the difference in today. Yes, they're printing a ton of cards. So if I was just out going buying base cards, I think that's a short term, like there's a lot of supply out there. But now you can actually know, okay, what is the scarcity of this card I'm buying where we did not know that as kids. So even if they're printing millions and millions of cards, if I want to go down a certain vein, it's okay, let's go to the more scarce version of that Otani rookie because I'm I'm big on him. Yeah. Also, globalization is happening too. So I think the demand is skyrocketing. If I was in Japan growing up, I didn't have sports cards or I maybe had a Japanese sports card. Um, but now the internet. Um, and there's aggregators like Starstock, like PWCC Vault, where literally I can be in Asia, I can buy a card, and it actually just transfers. It's in a vault. It's run by a company. It just transfers ownership. So now I can log on just like I would a stock portfolio, and I don't actually have to like have the card shipped out to me, pay $100 shipping. So I just think there's a lot of technology that's creating liquidity, access to information, and a much more demand, which I... You know, the argument is, will is the demand big enough where the supply is not going to outweigh that? Uh, who knows? But that's kind of the way I look at it today. Yeah, I mean, you make you make great points. Uh, I think it is a lot more business like. There's a lot more liquidity. There's a lot more transparency. 
Um, one uh, type of card I like is these Tops Project 70 cards where they do um, yeah. artists really kind of cool street art renderings of, of different athletes. I really like those. And they have limited runs and then they publish the number, right? Like when you receive yep. the card, they will go, this is one of 8,710 or whatever, you know, whatever the number is, you have a week yeah. to buy it. They publish it. I think they're, you know, lessons learned from the junk wax era. So what happened following the swoon uh, after the junk wax era, whereas before there were multiple licensees for, for each individual sport, like uh, when we were kids, there was Tops and Donruss and Fleer and Upper Deck and all of these all had MLB licenses. They changed it now. So for, for a very long time, it's been Tops for baseball, Upper Deck for hockey, Panini for football. They've sort of tried to, to create some of that scarcity now, there was a big announcement recently uh, that Fanatics would be taking over top spot as the license provider for MLB. I don't think it kicks in for, for two or three years, but that really sort of rocked the market. And I mean, in some cases, these are publicly traded companies. This is big business. Um, what does this signal for cards as an asset class and what does it say that that Tops, who has had a stranglehold on baseball cards since 1951, has been displaced by uh, effectively a, a brand that sells T-shirts. Like, what does the you know what does this say about about cards as an asset class, and and what are the implications that you see here? Yeah, that's a that's a big question uh, with not a very simple answer. Here's here's the way I look at it. I don't. It sounds like you're you game a little bit with your kids. I mean, I'll tell you the same thing happened in um, sports games. Mm -hmm. uh, Madden did not used to be the only publisher of an NFL sports game. Uh, back when I was growing up, I, I forget, there were three or four different versions, right? Then Madden got the NFL license. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people argue today because of the lack of competition, it's not as good of a game. They're not as, you know, they were, they were pretty, um, they were pretty innovative, you know, because they had to be when you've got three, four or five football games, because now it's like, how do I get the NFL sports game market share? Well, I've got to be ahead of the game and I've got to continue right. to innovate and evolve. A lot of people say like the Madden game hasn't really changed that much last five, six, 10 years since they had an exclusive uh, partnership with the NFL. Mm -hmm. I, you know, to me, competition always breeds. Uh, it's better for the consumer, better pricing, uh, better product. Uh, so the question is, as they go into kind of a monopoly, how does that impact us? Do they, are they set prices where they just make you pay whatever they decide to charge? Does the product go down? Does the, you know, the interest, uh, that's, what's kind of cool right now. There's a lot of interesting different types of cards, the project 70, one of the rabbit holes I fell into is there's a Panini makes a, an insert called a kaboom, which is, um, Basically, they make them in all different sports, NFL, baseball, basketball. But it was basically like a Marvel comic book character mm. of like real sports players. And it's like super limited. It's one per case. So mm. there's 12 boxes of cards. There's one kaboom per 12 boxes, not packs. And so I think some of those innovations of like creativity with different cards where it's more like art than it is, you know, just here's a picture of a guy playing sports on a card. I don't know how that'll evolve. So I tend to think monopolies are worse for consumers, but I have, I, I hope they have good intentions, but that's kind of my just off the cuff thoughts. 
Yeah. So one of the things that that fascinated me, and I think one of the reasons I was so surprised and foolishly gave my son a bunch of valuable cards is because I didn't I didn't see this coming. Uh, right. So last year, the the sale of there were ten different cards that went for about half a million dollars a piece. Uh, LeBron James rookie went for one point eight million last year. Mike Trout rookie went for three point eight million. If you had asked me which asset classes you would want to own when the world is falling apart, right? <laughs> I would have said necessities. I would have said you know yep. canned, canned food cigarettes and, you know, (laughs) and fallout shelters. And here we have this, let's be honest, completely frivolous asset class, just going totally wild in the midst of a pandemic. What sense do you make of what we saw in the explosion of value in collectibles and trading cards during a time when they seem so peripheral to, to what mattered? Boredom and extra cash mm. is my short answer. I think people ran out of things to do, which is why they read a well, and specifically sports fans. It's like there's no sports on. How do you get your fix, for lack of a better yeah. term? And they kind of went, you know, and also I think a lot of people are like, you're in your house for six months straight. It's like, well, I guess I'll go clean out the basement. Haven't, you know, I've been putting that off for a decade. And so <laughs> now they go find their, their, sports cards and, you know, start to rummage through them. And then what do all of us do? We pop on eBay. Hey, well, Oh shoot. Wow. This this thing's 300 bucks. And now you start to get sucked back in. I mean, at least that's how it happened with me. And then um, actually uh, some content creators were really ahead of the game. I would say Gary V big sports card guy. So, and that kind of like re-educated myself on how has this thing evolved? And it's evolved a lot since we were kids. Mm -hmm. Patrick. That's David, if I'm saying his his name right. He's he's got some good content out on sports cards, and then uh, Jeff Wilson, sports card investor, puts a ton of good content out, and he's like a startup investor guy that views it very much as a business. So I think the different thing is, you know, it's kind of this hobby guy that maybe makes a few bucks on the side when we were kids. Now it's true business, like like just like you would look at your stock portfolio. There's tools like Card Ladder. Uh, market movers from sports card investor. It's legitimately like a stock portfolio. I mean, I'm looking at on my screen here. I can see like as of my collection that I've got uh, my my biggest profit. You want to guess my biggest profit card right now? I have no clue. Jordan rookie. It's a, fo- it's a football player. Um, I actually bought a Josh Allen card. Oh, October. There you go. Yeah, and so he's obviously had a, a good. But but let's see. That's. I'll just give you the rate of growth. It's up 140.95%. And I bought it. I'm trying to look when I actually bought it less than a year ago. Yeah. And it's, it's a four figure profit, right? right? So now that's, if I would sell it, I'm probably not going to sell it. But the cool thing is just like you would look at your portfolio of stocks, you can see here's the card based on real, real market auctions, eBay, it's feeding them all in there. Here's the market price of this. And so I think what's different than we were kids, we had a Beckett sports guide that we would get every month. We would highlight it yellow and have the little up arrow. Up we hoped, down, yeah. It was like, exactly. And now like just the access to information and it's become a globalized market to where like it's, if you geek out on sports, you geek out on investing and you like collecting things. It's like, this is why, you know, I, it's like, I'll be a, 
I'll be like looking at auctions, you know, and I've got an hour lunch break. Uh, it's, it's, it's pretty addictive. It might be a problem. I don't, I don't know. So yeah, I, you, you and I, you and I share this addiction. So we've talked mostly about sports cards, but I want to talk about other types of cards, Pokemon cards set records Mm -hmm. during the pandemic going for many hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, Magic cards can be quite valuable. I'm sure there's other that I'm missing from a diversification standpoint, right? While we're analogizing this to to more traditional capital markets, from a diversification standpoint, do cards as a class tend to rise and fall together or are there diversification benefits to be had by diversifying between sports, say soccer, football, baseball, and then other collectibles like magic cards, Pokemon cards and the like? Yeah, yeah, I think there definitely is. And I think the, the math would say it versus just my opinion. And I think the other thing I'll throw in there is not just the individual cards, but sealed wax uh, Mm -hmm. is another diversification feature. So sealed wax would be, I buy a box of cards and I don't open them. I literally just hold onto the box with all of the packs inside of it and I sit on it. So just looking through data, typically what happens, prices peak during the season. You think about it, it's not that complicated. I'm watching the NBA season that just kicked off. Well, now I'm watching the up and coming rookies, you know, the Lonzo balls, the LaMelo balls. Well, now, and, and by the way, I guess it goes without saying the most valuable card typically for most players is called their rookie card, which is their first card issue. And so I've got the Lonzo rookie from a season or two ago. Now I see him balling out the first half of the season. Well, now I see my card just doubled in price. Mm. Um, so, so it's like having a small cap or a startup investment there's a lot more volatility in a young player, but like a Trevor Lawrence in football, he was like the next, next big thing. His card spiked really high before the season. Now there's a little bit of a lull because his performance hasn't been great, but typically the peak prices are during the season and then the off season hits and they tend to, to trail off because people move on to the next sport. That's where their mm-hmm. attention is. That's, that's the liquidity of the market based on performance on the field. And then when the season comes back around, they pop again. So if I was going to look at it from a sheer investment standpoint, I'm typically going to pick up cards in the off season, preferably. And if I was going to sell them, I'd start to sell them during the season because those are the, just like there's market cycles. I think it's what every summer where wall street mm-hmm. goes on vacation. Yep. Typically, you know, prices, there's a lot less uh, volume being traded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's the way, like if you're strategically going to look at it, the other thing too is, like I tend to be, I've gone a little more modern lately. So modern would be current players. Vintage would be old retired players like Hall of Famers. I tend to weight my portfolio about 80% vintage, 20% modern. So just like you wouldn't slam all your money into, you know, GameStop or some super volatile, uh, you know, equity. I tend to focus most of mine on, like I picked up a Jim Brown rookie He's, he's not going anywhere. You know, he's, right. he's a goat. He's established in a good graded card. There's a scarcity there. And so those tend to, over time, just continue to increase in value where the, the more current volatile players, so that's a little bit more of a gamble, but it's fun because now you're yeah. watching them perform on the field. Now you're like, oh, Tawny crushed it. You know, I, I bought this card at the beginning of the season. Now it's worth double, triple what it was, you know, when I bought it. So there, but there's volatility. It can go the other way too. 
Yeah. As the, as the owner of 15 Otani rookies, I can tell you that I have a problem and that I may be a little, <laughs> and maybe a little overweight, uh, the new guys. Uh, it, it, it has been interesting for me to watch though. I mean, if you look at someone in baseball, like Wander Franco, who is sort of the, you know, the, the next big thing in baseball, if you look at what it costs to pick up a Wander Franco rookie, it's many hundreds of dollars, even for a fairly common one. A lot of times you can get Hall of Fame level players from 15 or 20 years ago for a fraction of that. So it is interesting. Yeah. There's that whole sort of growth stock mania trees grow to the sky thing with with collectibles. And you see some value plays. You see some cyclicality. When you're familiar with markets, I think many of the same concepts that you've learned about in traditional markets will, will apply here. So, well, so now let's talk about crypto markets. Uh, NBA Top Shot, the sort of basketball NFT enterprise, had an incredible rise, was very much in the news, has since cooled off rather dramatically. Uh, baseball, interestingly, has a has a digital footprint that it gets no love. I mean, the 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 baseball NFTs are, you know, go for pennies for whatever reason. Yep. But in, in the era of crypto, uh, NFTs and, and the like, do you think the future of trading cards is, is still cardboard? Or, or do we leave this behind in favor of a more digital footprint and, and more NFTs? I don't know is the short answer. But I, I, I will tell you, I do own some, some crypto, some digital cards, some NFTs, whatever you want to call them. Here's where my head goes. I, I just like to think long term. It, it, it also goes back to what's your horizon on your on. So let's just that there's if where what I would truly say is sports are, sports cards is I think truly starting to cement cement itself as a true alternative investment class, just like um, just like high end wine is an alternative asset class. And so now if I look at it, what is my time horizon on that investment? Do I want to be a day trader? Mm -hmm. You know picking up some Otani rookies and flipping them as soon as he has, you know, a good run for a couple months. Mm -hmm. And now I made a 20% a return and I cash out and put that money back to work. Or am I looking at it like a, a Warren Buffett value investor play where I, I want to find some good long-term holds where I think, you know, over time, the next 10, 20 years, that that's going to be a great play. So the first I start there. Now, if you go into the NFT question, the way I see it, it's just, if I have a sports card portfolio, like a pie chart, back to your diversification, I, I, you know, I watched very little soccer. I started to get into soccer cards. I watched very little UFC. I started to get into UFC cards. Why? They were underpriced compared to other sports markets. Uh, baseball vintage. So the Mantles, the, the, the Ruths, those, that's, where the, that's where the hobby started. So that's where the big money is. And then what you saw is if you looked pre-COVID, if you would have looked at vintage basketball, like the Wilt Chamberlain rookies, the Oscar Robinsons, um, the Pete Maraviches, and even to the Jordan, the, the 86, 87 Fleer, which is like the big card for him, those were undervalued if you compared them to vintage baseball. Mm -hmm. So if I'm looking at a portfolio, I just want to say, okay, where's the opportunity? It's just like sectors, right? In, yeah. in, a, in a market, it's like, oh, well, technology is like underway. You know, if you would have thought that before COVID, you would have done really well. So I look at NFTs as just a sliver, once again, 
Um, just like I do in my portfolio with crypto, you know, like Bitcoin, I have, I have small holdings of that. I wish I had more, but I wasn't, I wasn't ahead of that game. So NFTs to me, here's where I look at those. There was just an article, I forget it, you, you might know, but, but obviously Facebook just re- rebranded themselves as Meta. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think they're dumb people. They know technology. Um, for those that have either read the book or seen the movie Ready Player One, where mm-hmm. it's like futuristic, where everybody straps on their headset, their VR headset, and goes and lives their life in a different world most of the day, it's coming. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at look at Facebook right now. A lot of people live like four hours a day on Facebook instead mm-hmm. of in the real world. And so I just, if I'm playing the long game, the the Gretzky, you know, skate to where the puck is going. There will be a day where somebody uh, will pop in. Decentraland is owned by the Winklevoss twins, mm-hmm. has its own crypto. It is an online world where you can actually go buy a parcel of land with cryptocurrency in it. So now you build a, a house on a, on a digital piece of land. Now, just like if I want to have Daniel over and show him the cards in my basement because we both geek out on it. Well, guess what? If he's in VR world and we walk through my digital house, I'm like, oh, check out my my NFT collection, it's the same thing. It's like people like scarce things. They like to show them off. They like to have, you know, converse topics of conversation. I think long-term that will happen. I don't know on what format, what forum, which NFT is the better one compared to that one. I know Beeple has made a lot of news. I think there was even talks that somebody bought the, the Beeple, who's the famous like crypto artist or NFT artist. And they're going to do an online museum. So they're going to do a virtual museum where you walk through and there, there it is. So that's like the Mona Lisa of the digital world. So my gut says it will be a thing. I don't know which one. I don't know on what platform. Mm -hmm. Um, So if I was going to do it, I would just diversify just like I would anything else. And hopefully you uh, get ahead of the curve on the right one. Yeah. So if if someone has made it this far in the episode and they're not rolling their eyes at us and they don't think we're total nerds and we've talked them into, you know, taking taking the first step into this madness that we've descended into, how would you tell someone who's brand new to this to just dip a toe into these sorts of collectibles? I would start with something you like. because mm-hmm. uh, I mean, it's just like podcasting. If you don't enjoy having conversations with people and you're not naturally curious and you don't like to learn, you probably shouldn't start an interview style podcast. I know that's one of the reasons we connect. That's like kind of at our core, the type of people we are. So if you're just looking at it as the sheer like money-making scheme, I would say there's probably lots of other ways you should make money. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you love sports or you love Pokemon or magic, so you've got an interest already. If you like investing, if you like collecting, the cool thing is it's all out there on YouTube. <laughs> Just go. That's what I did. Like, as I was diving back in this rabbit hole, I tend to, the things I have interest in, I tend to go super deep. I watched hours of Gary V content. He's got a lot of stuff out there. Hours of Jeff Wilson, sports card investor. There's another guy I can't think of. That's got a cool, cool. Uh, he runs a sports card shop and kind of breaks down the economics of it. And I just, I really geeked out on it. I started to learn what are parallels what you know? What are PSA grading? What's pop counts? Because it has a different language. You have to start to understand to make sure you make sound investments. If you're looking at it as a true, well, there's two. There's two avenues. There's collector, you know, personal collector, where it's like I don't really care what it costs. I just like this player and want to display it in my basement. Or there's an investor, 
or there's both, which I think I kind of cross over there. Yeah. So depending on what you are, if you're going the investment, just like you would want to do a lot of education before you put your money somewhere, that would be my advice is go geek out on YouTube for a few hours or spend a couple of weeks just randomly watching videos and you can learn a ton out there. Yeah, I've um, I spend many mornings uh, in the same pursuit, trying to learn, get better at this, understand it better, and just it's easy when you love it, right? So I, I love what you said. If if you don't love the game, if you don't love uh, collecting, there's other ways to make money. Go find one that works for you. But if you do, it, it it truly is an alternative asset class that I believe is is maturing in a way that's going to make it an, an interesting one to watch going forward. So before we give you a chance to shout out your business, I want to give you quick lightning round questions. Just say the first thing that comes to your mind, all right? Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Okay. Yeah. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. First card you ever loved? I'll give you a player. I had 100 plus Ricky Henderson cards. That was oh. my guy. Yeah. Ricky, when I was looking through mine, Ricky Henderson... Bo Jackson, Griffey Jr., those, well, and Ozzie Smith. I was a huge Ozzie Smith fan. I had yeah. tons of Ozzie Smith cards. Perfect. Favorite card that you currently own? They're like children. You love them all. But the one that I just picked up that I really love, um, Ricky Henderson. Now, this is, once again, this is when you geek out on this stuff, you start to learn. A um, couple other, Cardboard Connection is a great one, um, which gives you, like, all the sets, all of the the checklist, all of the parallels in them, but they, I, I went down a rabbit hole. Um, this was a junk wax, early junk wax era card. So Henderson was a rookie in 1980. Opeachy, who was the Canadian version of tops mm. cards, look the exact same other than it says Opeachy versus tops in most scenarios. Opeachy would do limited releases of the same tops baseball sets. And it was really, there's a great article on cardboard connection. You can probably find it and mm -hmm. like post it in the show notes or whatever. Um, but basically because it was a Canadian company, they were heavy on blue Jays players and Expos players. So they would <laughs> load the sets with those guys. Um, and, and they would actually take the normal top set that was like six or 700. It might be 300. Mm -hmm. So there was no 1980 Opeachy Ricky Henderson rookie was not produced. There was a 1981, which looks the exact same as the 1981 tops. So I stumble on an eBay auction and there's a PSA 10, which is a perfect version of a Ricky Henderson Opeachy 1981, which is actually his rookie in Opeachy pop count four, which means there's four in the world. Whoa. I, I bought it. I think it was the steal of a lifetime. I just think right now, this is the interesting, uh, this is the interesting place. I think sports cards are We're we're in this convergence of data, but not all, not all the data is out there yet. And I will tell you the 1980 tops rookie in a PSA 10 is about $125,000 card. Wow. I paid about, I paid five grand mm -hmm. for a 1981 Opeachy in a PSA four, uh, a PSA 10 with a pop four, four in the world. The pop 10 and the 80 rookie tops is 25 and it's a $125,000 card. So who knows? Some people might say Opeachy sucks. I don't want an Opeachy card. But I think long-term, as that data comes out, that's not a $5,000 card. I yeah. think that's probably a substantially higher card. So that was a recent buy that I'm like, I think I, think I was on to something on that one. We'll see. No, that's neat. And I, I like that story, first of all, because it's personally meaningful to you. You know, it's someone you watched as a kid and he was an incredible base thief and a, and a, and a great star. But it also shows how these inefficiencies exist, I think, in, in the trading card market 
in a way that they don't perhaps in, in other capital markets that are more efficient. Yeah. If you're willing yep. to do the homework, if you're willing, if you're willing to geek out and do do the back yep. back reading, you, you there's investment opportunities. So what's a grail card that you don't currently own that you would like to own one day? Man, there's a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> I went down. I went down the path. This was during COVID, where I, I started like the NFL put out their top 100, top 125 players of all time, and so mm-hmm. I just started going down the list and like trying to get a highly graded card. Which, as you get into vintage old cards, a PSA seven or eight might be highly graded because sure. people didn't take care of them back then. So Grail card. I mean, I'll tell you the first one that comes to mind. It's probably the Jordan. 86, 87 FLIR card in a PSA 10. I have it in a nine. The 10 is substantially more expensive. <laughs> um, so I, I, that's probably the first one that comes to mind. Yeah, save save your money. We'll hope the new business is a big hit. And the last, the yeah. last one is, what's your value investing pick for the future? What's something that you think is currently undervalued that you think will, will take off in, in the future? Here, I'm going to give you three. So I've been buying a lot of soccer lately mm. um so there's there's some ri- so there's the even even soccer pre-covid was i believe substantially underpriced you could get messi's and ronaldo's who would be like the the jordans of that sport like low pop rookies for like fives or tens of thousands of dollars versus mm. you know you look at their equivalents in other sports hundreds of thousands of dollars and the market's caught up a bit but i think we've got back to inflection points you've got the world cup coming up in 2022 in the U.S., I think soccer is kind of an afterthought. Worldwide, though, it's the biggest sport in the world. Now, the sports card market, the liquidity, the information is starting to get widespread. I was in a clubhouse uh, chat with a, a guy that loves soccer cards in Ireland. They don't even have cards over there. They have stickers. That's how, that's how the market is over there. Is soccer was like stickers. Panini made them. So they're just starting to get access global access to this. So I think there's going to be a massive demand. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a rocket scientist, but I think as they get access to this, I think soccer will go up. I think we've got 2022 world cup. The U S has the world cup in 2026. So I think if I was going to be buying like a market sector for lack of a better term, I'd be looking soccer UFC with the fanatics announcement. The only, uh, I believe licenses that Panini will have after that's done because Fanatics took over what Major League Baseball, NFL, I think they gobbled up kind of the main U.S. sports. Mm -hmm. So now they will have UFC and they will have soccer. So if you're a company like Panini that has to make money, my guess is you're going to switch all your marketing efforts. I've already seen this with Panini and UFC to put a massive focus on UFC. I think UFC is already a growing sport. It has a worldwide audience because you've got fighters from all over the world. Those have already started to spike, but I, I think UFC would be a good place to look. And then the last one I'll say that is an absolute no-brainer if you have patience and you're disciplined. Sealed wax, it's it's actually skyrocketed much more than the actual cards that are inside for a few reasons. Number one, there's this dynamic called online breaking in sports cards where mm-hmm. I can get on an eBay auction and I can say, okay, Instead of buying the whole box of cards, I just want to buy the Kansas City Chiefs. So this online breaker live streams on YouTube or Instagram or some other place, and they have your name and they say, Brad gets all of the Chiefs players out of this box. 
and they literally live stream it. And there's like a crowd cheering, you know, <laughs> in the comments of like, who's going to get the big pulls. And so it's gambling, it's entertainment, and it's also a way to, to get your team or your player without having to buy the whole box. And so now how, what do breakers need? They need supply and think about wine. What happens when you pop the bottle of wine? Mm-hmm. The global supply just decreased by a bottle. That's why vintage wine has outpaced the S&P because there's a high demand and a decreasing supply. So if I get a sports card, unless I burn it or do something, the supply is still the supply. If I get a sealed box or sealed wax, as it's called in the industry, the supply is decreasing over time. The Brady rookie year, 2020 or 2000 Bowman has skyrocketed. The 86, 87 Fleer, I think that's like two, 300, 400,000 a box. I don't remember the most recent price. So now if I'm disciplined enough to buy the box with the rookie class that matters, in my opinion, there's absolutely no way that that investment goes down over time, assuming the rookie class pans out because there's the demand of, is that big rookie in there in a high grade? So that would be my, if I was just going to give one, I'd say you should buy sealed wax in the right card, the prestigious card that that people collect with the right rookie class. And I'll just say it, you won't lose money. I'm just going to make, I would never say that in the market, you know, like the the investment market. I will say, if you go buy a Tom Brady rookie 2000 Bowman box today and come back and listen to this podcast 10 years from now, you will thank me and other big rookie classes. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go collect some soccer cards. I'm going to collect some UFC cards. There is no way that I have the discipline to open a box, to, to purchase a box and not open it. I, I am not Superman, sir, but I do think it's I do think it's great advice. Brad, you're an incredible resource to the advisor community. You have uh, talked to us about your, your side hustle, your passion here. If people want to find out more about your business, uh, about your about your day job, where can we find you and where can folks connect with you? So that we're, we're actually in the process of a relaunch. So I'll just give you my personal website. It's Bradley Johnson. So B-R-A-D-L-E-Y Johnson.com. That's where my podcast, once I relaunch it, will live. That's where you can find out more. Uh, but yeah, just go there. I, I still have my old episodes from my old show up. Uh, so there should be, some, I know there's at least two great episodes out there with you in them. There's two um, so, incredible so, Daniel Crosby episodes. Yes. Yeah. So, so go check those out in the meantime, and then I'll be, I'll be relaunching the the show here pretty soon. All right, man. Well, thank also, you. Also Twitter, although I'm not as, uh, I'm not, a, I'm not on there as much as you are. So Brad underscore Johnson on Twitter, if you want to connect there. Yeah. I can't say enough good things about Brad and the, and the sort of resource he is to, to advisors like uh, those that listen to this podcast, Brad, thank you so much for being here and, and for sharing your, your insight and your knowledge and your passion with us. Thanks, Daniel. It's been fun. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliate subsidiaries and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.